this station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Once again, it's time for Evidence for Faith, the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program. I'm Kirk Hastings, and our usual co-host, Keith Kendricks, uh, is out of town this week. So we have a special guest with us today, and he has a very interesting um, background and topic that he's going to be talking about. Uh, to give it a, a quick name, it's called Assumption Jiu-Jitsu. <laughs> So hopefully that'll uh, tantalize you a little bit. Uh, Of course, we'd also like to mention that uh, we have a website. If you'd like to check that out, it's at evidence4faith.com, where you can also email us questions if you have questions about anything that we discuss on the program or anything in general you'd like to ask about Christianity or the Bible. Feel free to write us there and ask us your question, and we'll do our best to answer it for you. Uh, You can also listen to podcasts of past programs that we've done on our website. Website. You can also listen to us on iTunes. Uh, we have a TuneIn Radio app, which uh, I don't use apps really uh, too much. So I'm not even sure how you do that, but I'm sure many people out there do. And uh, once again, if you would like to email us a question about anything we discuss on here, you can email us at email at evidence the number four faith.com. Okay, so as I said, uh, Keith is on vacation this week. But we have a special guest. His name is Joe McGettigan. He is an ordained minister and one of the elders of the Maranatha Christian Fellowship Church in Moorestown, New Jersey. Yes, sir. Hello, Joe. Greetings. And I assume you live in Moorestown, is that correct? Uh, no, actually, I live uh, a little north, northeast, or excuse me, northwest of uh, Moorestown in uh, Delanco. Oh, okay. So you had a little bit of drive to get to the studio. A little bit. A little bit. Okay. But he's here, and we're ready to roll. And as I said, uh, he's, uh, he's an apologist, and he has a very interesting lecture that uh, he has done at, uh, I believe, at Stockton yes, State sir. College and some other colleges around the area. Mm-hmm. And it is also, he also refers to it as presuppositional apologetics. That's the fancy-sounding name. That, yeah, that would be the, uh, the academic end of it, yes. Okay. So we're going to go through that today, and I think you'll find this really interesting. I've been reading through his notes this week on this, and I've been fascinated by it. So, Joe, uh, can you give us a little introduction to this, what we're uh, going to be delving into today? Yeah, as, as briefly as I can. Um, I mean, when all is said and done, the, the goal of what we do is really the same as any uh, system of apologetics. It's, it's essentially to remove psychological barriers to belief. And, and the reality is, is that our, our culture, our culture uh, just bombards us with all kinds of ideas that cloud the issues leading to faith, and our goal is by exposing these for what they are, is it is that it takes those barriers down, allowing one to believe while not actually checking their brains at the door. And That's uh, much of what we do here every week. On that's exactly right. Yeah, and that's, as I said, it's uh, very similar to anything in, uh, in apologetics. And in, in doing so, uh, what I found is that God cr- uh, creates a firm foundation in our hearts and minds, and as a result, uh, we aren't, you know, tossed to and fro, as Ephesians 4 talks about. And and my personal conviction is that this is uh, particularly important on college campuses with, you know, all of the, de- the ideas that are thrown at them specifically. And um, essentially what we do in, in presuppositional apologetics is we look at uh, what we call our own epistemology. Um, essentially, how do we know 
what we say we know. And uh, so epistemology is just a big word for that. And what we're going to see is that the uh, things that we think we quote-unquote know ultimately are based on things that we assume and believe. And B, when you put those assumptions uh, under uh, any kind of examination, a world without God just really doesn't hold up in any kind of a logical sense. Um, presuppositional uh, apologetics is is uh, a system developed by uh, Cornelius Van Til. Nothing of, of what I'm saying today is, is really original per se, and um, if I could uh, give credit where credit is due, um, everything that I know about presuppositional apologetics comes from my pastor and, and friend George Bowen um, at Maranatha, but um, it, uh, presuppositional apologetics rests very heavily on Romans 1, 18-22. Uh, it basically says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. And then Paul makes a very strong statement here, is that he says, So that they are without excuse. And then he goes on and says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So there's three pertinent issues here with uh, presuppositional apologetics. Um, well, yeah, That's very interesting that uh, you're bringing up these verses, because I go to Linwood Community Church here in Linwood, New Jersey, and... Uh, our pastor has been speaking on those very verses the past couple of weeks. Okay, we'll take that Fits as a right timely in. message. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and of course, you know all these big words and everything too. So you're a great substitute for Keith. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Um, you can feel free to uh, to have me stop and break them down if we, wherever you think appropriate. But I've been accused of that before. Um, but uh, there's three basic building blocks in these verses for presuppositional apologetics. One is that God has created the world, and and that. Uh, and all that's in it, and that he puts it out as a self-evident testimony to his existence and what he's about. And, and this is, uh, you know, essentially what it just comes down to is God created the world to show who he is and, and what he's about. Genesis 1, in the beginning God created. Without apology, without, you know, any, any pretense, it's just assumed fact. Psalm 19 also talks about how God uh, exposes his glory in, in different elements of creation. So basically, Paul's testifying that God has evidence all around us, and that's where his, his statement comes out really very strongly, is that we have no excuse but to acknowledge God in his existence. And, and the reality is, is that, it, take that a step further, is that all men know in their depths that God exists. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that, that God has put eternity in the hearts of men, and some, and we're jumping ahead a little bit, but some oppress, uh, suppress it better than others, but the strength of the statement is clear. Um, second thing is that man, uh, in, in these verses, is that man suppresses the truth in order to maintain his autonomy from God. And, and when all is said and done, that's the nature of sin. Uh, and that's what Satan tweaked in the garden, at least in part, when he said, you know, did God really say... And, and, you know, what, what God really wants is for you to be under his thumb. And if you just do this, then you won't be. So he's kind of tweaking that autonomy that was inherent in man. And when he talks about suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, there's a, an illustration that one of the, the real uh, uh, pioneers and, and forefathers of uh, presuppositionalism, Greg Bonson, he uses a, a, an illustration about a beach ball, that that's the truth. And it's like the old beach ball game in the pool where you press the beach ball down under the water and then it kind of squirts up and then they push it down underneath. <laughs> and it squirts up again. That's kind of you know the, the truth of God that happens in man's heart. You can't get away from it no matter how uh, hard yeah, you try. And, and, and it's big and it's colorful and it's evident to all that you just let the ball come up, yes. <laughs> um, and then the third part that's inherent in these verses is that uh, where Paul says, professing to be wise, they become fools. And, and this strong language really kind of uh, offends our modern sensibilities. But basically what he's doing there is that he's speaking of of how any unbelieving view on anything is ultimately reduced to absurdity, and the things that, that frankly, can, can sound so smart and enlightened really come out to be foolish when examined, and this is a critical piece to all of this, when examined under their own 
assumptions and constructs, and we can talk about that more in detail later. And that's where the assumption jujitsu comes in. Correct, correct. Is that, is that basically what it does is that it takes the assumptions of the unbelieving world, kind of turns it back, and I guess technically it should be uh, Aikido, but um, <laughs> um, it, it turns the weight of those arguments back on themselves to expose it really as, as really impossible to be true. And so what it all basically boils down to is this. Everything that we know and understand, people, places, things, events, ideas, thoughts, philosophies, ideologies, all of it, operate within a context. And the Bible emphatically and directly asserts that the context for all of this is God's created universe. So logically, we follow that out, that the context is either God's world as he defines it in the Bible, or it's something else. And, and the Bible is very clear, obviously, that, that it's under, under God. And at issue here, and, and this is another really critical piece to all of this, is that there is no middle ground between the world that God created and, and anything else. And, and again, we'll see how that develops over time. It's either or, it's not something and something. Correct, correct. And, and, and this is one of the places where, um, uh, for a number of reasons, as I've talked on college campuses and, and with different individuals, that people have trouble getting their, their heads around because... Uh, uh, people like choices today. They don't like to be told that you have to either pick this or this. They want to be able yes. to pick either one if they want. Right, and that's a piece of it. And, and in, in doing so, what it does is that it forces you down the road to say one thing is true and and another isn't. One is right. the actual state or condition of things, and the other isn't. And the idea of absolute truth is just kind of a, a, an anathema. People just don't go there when right. the reality is in saying that there's no absolute truth, it becomes an absolute statement, at which point <laughs> you're back to square one. Right. Um, and you've been down that road, I, I, I'm oh, yes. sure. Um, so the if we could do it another way, Cornelius Van Til, uh, he, he would state that there is nothing that we would call a quote-unquote brute fact. And what he meant by that was that anything that we would call a quote-unquote fact is interpreted or synthesized in some way. And ultimately, uh, we will interpret any issue uh, out of what we call the ultimate commitment. When you boil down all of the various assumptions and you get all the way down to the most basic assumptions, you have what's called uh, the ultimate commitment, basically believing in the God of the Bible or not. And jumping ahead again a little bit is that if you fall in the not column, the interpretation cannot be true, basically because when held to its own assumptions, it's not in the, in the correct context, and as a result, will come up absurd. In other words, it doesn't hold up. Correct, correct. Rationally or intellectually or factually or whatever. It just, if you go far enough with the God doesn't exist argument, it doesn't hold up at some point. Right, because of the implications underneath it. And, and if, if you're tracking with all of this, um, somebody might be confused with how this actually provides answers. Um, and what I mean by that is, is um, in a lot of ways, it can create a, almost a, an is-so, is-not, is-so, is-not you know, kind of situation. And uh, Greg Bonson, uh, again, I'm not sure that I personally like the, uh, the statement, but he talks about a, a Mexican standoff. The Mexican standoff is, you know, in the old movies where, you know, the two guys are squared off with their guns and, and neither is going to drop theirs. And, and you, you have this picture then of the believing and non-believing uh, ultimate commitments in, in play here where saying, you know, there is a God, is not, is so, is not. It's God's world. No, it isn't. And, and you drop your ultimate commitment. No, you drop yours right. and 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 I mean and you've been in enough discussions on this Kirk we you know you know it in very often it, it falls into that and um, it ends basically in in frustration on both sides and and in a, in a seeking for truth in my mind that becomes a very frustrating proposition it can be yeah <laughs> so so you get if you, again if you're tracking with that you end up with this Mexican standoff and you and you say well what what is the tiebreaker then how does that work where you're just not in a you said I said situation and this is where uh, presuppositional apologetics comes in, is that Cornelius Van Til coined a phrase called the impossibility of the contrary, at which point, unless you're familiar with presuppositional apologetics, you should be going, um, what? <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the what? The, yeah, yes, yes. Um, He's even got it on his notes, the yeah, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, the impossibility of the contrary, basically said another way, is that it's impossible that this is not the case. So what, what Van Til is basically saying, saying is that it's impossible for God to not exist as he declares himself to be. 
And basically, if God didn't exist the way he declares himself to be, nothing could make sense. So the impossibility of the contrary, again, is that it's impossible that something isn't the case. Specific to God in the Bible, it's saying that it is impossible for God to not exist as he declares himself to be. And uh, kind of paraphrase, but uh, Van Til would say that man without God ultimately can't make sense of his world, and he will be reduced to absurdity or not making sense. And so really, that's where the difference between the arguments comes in is, you know, based on our past experience of dealing, of uh, debating with atheists and people that say, you know, they don't believe in God or whatever, um, there, there's they're always trying to convince us that their point of view makes sense. But what you're saying is the idea that God does not exist, if we're trying to make sense out of anything in the universe, then that cannot make sense, no matter how you argue it. Yes, because of the most basic assumptions underneath. And and this is where it gets difficult, because you get into a almost a double or maybe even a triple negative. Um, so, so you're kind of flip-flopping back and forth. But when all is said and done, it's not really rocket science. Basically, what we're saying is, is that that if somebody isn't interpreting the world or interpreting anything according to the actual state or condition of things, which is the definition of truth that I use, if they are not interpreting according to the actual state or condition of things, they have to stop making sense sooner or later as you go back deeper and deeper into the assumptions. Right. Um, I, I heard a phrase one time that kind of captures this, is truth is, lies are invented. And, and that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, back to the other a statement is that basically what it comes down to is if your context is wrong, your interpretation of the content also has to be wrong. Right. And and a way that I like to um, get into this is you know how how do you know when somebody or something um, either somebody doesn't know what they're talking about or that they're lying. Right? Either they're misinformed or whatever. You know that because when, when they start piecing the pieces together, they stop making sense. It you doesn't said, fit. Correct. Is it you? You said you were at uh, the convenience store at 12. That person said that they saw you and actually spoke to you at 12.01. Those things can't go together, so you know that the person is lying. And right. as you go back through the assumptions of the unbelieving worldview, and we'll dissect this in, in detail, um, it comes down to the the unbelieving world just can't make sense. And and if I could, Kirk, I think that it's important to get into here is that is that this really came out of my own personal journey. Of at one point, religion had really no, and and God, the Bible. I mean, really not a whole lot of impact on my worldview at all, and and really no meaning of life at all. I was a, a confirmed existentialist with uh, healthy doses of nihilism. If you know what those are, great. If not. There was not a whole lot of meaning in life because I was seeing the absurdities that we're talking about, and and frankly, I see that uh, around in a lot of discussions that that I find myself in. I was just going to say that there are a number of of atheists and agnostics who will start out by saying, well, the world doesn't make sense. Right. They admit that they don't think it makes sense. Right. But even them saying it doesn't make sense doesn't make sense because then they start arguing with you about how why it doesn't make sense. Right. But if it doesn't make sense, none of your arguments are going to matter anyway because your arguments don't make sense. <laughs> Did that make sense? Yeah. I'm personally following you, yes. You're probably um, the only one that is. D- but. <laughs> but it's a good discussion nonetheless. Um, so, so when you cut uh, to really one of the main topics of the day and, and where I met Keith was in this presentation that, that we came up with, the Assumption Jiu-Jitsu. It comes up with uh, uh, real-world examples practical real-world examples of places where listening to the ultimate commitment and and how to see where they don't make sense. I don't know if that was a, a good English sentence or not, but... And I um, like the name that you have for this, too. You call this oops. Yes. And and where <laughs> oops comes from is uh, we've, we've, we, we have four chambers of life. You could think of it in, in that way. You have order, which is, um, is, is there some kind of an implied direction, purpose, um, intention, uh, methodical arrangement, some kind of order in the universe? Um, is there oughtness? So you have order and oughtness. Oughtness would be um, any sense that something is right or wrong. Something, quote-unquote, should be different. Something should be the same. Anything that should be another way. Any kind of a moral code, in other correct, words. Correct, correct. Um, but something is better or worse than another. Right. Um, personhood. Is there a supreme 
something that is ruling over all of this or not? Is there a personhood in man or are we, you know, really gets to the essence of, of what man is about? Are we just, you know, chemicals and... Just as, robots? Yeah, robots or, or a, you know, uh, two steps better than a German shepherd or <laughs> is there something inherently different about us? Right. And where does that come from? And then sin would be if there is a moral code and that moral code is violated, is there an opportunity for some type of what we'll broadly term redemption or correction of that? Some way to fix it. Correct, correct. And that's where we end up with oops. Right. Order, oughtness, personhood, and sin. Right. And um, um, basically, when you push the unbelieving worldview through each of those, this is cheesy, but it helps people to remember it. Um, <laughs> when you push uh, unbelieving worldviews through order, oughtness, personhood, and sin, oops, it forces man to say oops because God doesn't. Um, and that just came to me. But um, so that's, that's the overall system. And, and when all is said and done, behind all of this, is, the interesting piece is, and, and this really is the critical jumping off point in when we start getting into order, oughtness, personhood, and sin, is that people universally expect each of those things. So people expect in their world to be orderly and predictable. It's the basis for science. Um, it's the basic for logic. It's the basis for math and statistics. It's the basis for when I give you a dollar for a 50-cent item that you're going to give me 50 cents back. It's a very practical thing. People expect order in their universe. Right. Um, one of the... the um, Examples that Greg Bonson uses is that he says, you know, when you when you squeeze the toothpaste, uh, toothpaste in the morning, what do you expect is going to happen? You expect the toothpaste is going to come out of the tube onto your toothbrush. At which point you go, why is that? Well, because <laughs> there's order in the universe. You know, we call it the laws of physics and chemistry and all of that. That you expect that that will happen. Right. Um, as we'll see in a random universe, we really shouldn't be able to expect that. But uh, this people- is kind of similar to an, uh, an argument that C.S. Lewis uses in uh, a lot of his books, but *Mere Christianity* in mm-hmm. particular, where he uses the moral argument to prove God's existence, where he says. Um, um, you know, take an atheist who says, well, there's no universal moral code. We all make up our own codes. And he likes to say, well, take that person's seat on the subway and see if he doesn't object to that and say that, well, you shouldn't have done that. Right, right. Excellent. Yeah, excellent right. application. Yeah. Um, or or pull, pull that out when you've just violated somebody's contract. Right. It has it has to be there. Then their natural reaction is, well, that's wrong. You shouldn't have done that. Right, right. right. No, that's exactly right. And, and, and the important piece here is to keep in mind is that what we are not talking about are specific elements of right or wrong. It's right to uh, right or wrong to kill. It's right or wrong to steal. It's right or wrong to have overdue library books. It's right or wrong to chew gum in class. <laughs> at issue is, is that all societies at any given time history, past, present, or future, had some measure of right and wrong. So you're not talking about the specific moral rules. You're Correct. talking about the idea that there should be rules at all. At all. If I, if I think that it's appropriate in, in my cannibalistic society that after our broadcast that I'm not, uh, you know, I'm taking you to dinner means something completely different than what you're thinking, <laughs> then yes, in my world that would be okay. I'm having you for dinner. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so that, you know, so we're not talking about uh, deeming any specific item right or wrong. We're talking about people expect that there is right or wrong, something right. should or should not be. Right. There's a recognition of respect and dignity for the person, and this is where personhood comes in. There's a, a an expectation that, that somehow myself should be respected and understood. There's a universal expectation of an explanation or an antidote for human shortcomings. So you have each of the pieces in order, oughtness, personhood, and sin. The question is, why do people expect those? Right. And that really is a critical piece, and this is where the the final, uh, or one of the final pieces that um, uh, Van Til talks about is borrowed capital. Basically what borrowed capital is, and if you remember in the beginning I said that it's important that you interpret each worldview through its own assumptions and constructs, and, and that becomes critical. What happens with the unbelieving worldviews is that they borrow ideas from the Christian worldview. So, for example, when you talk about love, dignity, etc., those are things that come, that are not inherent to, for example, a naturalistic worldview. A naturalistic worldview says there's time, energy, random chance, and matter. Where do love and dignity come in with time, energy, random chance, and matter? 
is that within that worldview, love and dignity, non-material absolutes don't don't hold. Right. That's that's kind of along the lines of something that I like to say to atheists is that if God didn't exist and God wasn't good, we wouldn't have any concept of a moral right and wrong. There would just be what is and what isn't. Correct. Correct. Um, if we are just products of endless chemical properties, if you boil that down into it, and, and I realize that this is oversimplified, but I think the logic still holds, is that if we are nothing more than a set of chemical reactions on, you know, on steroids, no pun intended, is um, <laughs> then what, what is morally different between killing a person and shaking up a bottle of soda? And I need to be very clear here is that if we are reduced to just chemical reactions and random happenings, when you go back through all of the assumptions, there really is no difference. And, and that's where I'm jumping way, way ahead here. But, but or that's we could a, go uh, a little further with that and say, you know, the difference between killing a human being and stepping on a bug. Right. Yeah. And, and that's where you, know, you start getting into some of the Eastern philosophies and, and whatnot. And, and we right. probably aren't prepared Where they don't to go believe there. in even that. They don't think you should even kill like an ant or anything because they hold all life to be sacred. Right. And and there, when you start going down those roads, um, there are some serious breaches in the ideas of of oughtness and personhood that that render them absurd. But the short answer is yes. And and um, there was a, a classic debate between uh, Greg Bonson and. Um, uh, Stein, I believe it was Gordon Stein at the uh, University of California in Irvine in uh, 1985. You can still find it on the internet in, in the MP3. And long story short was that the question that Bonson continued to ask uh, regarding you know some issues about you know uh, uh, Stein saying that man you know the, the the ends of man should be to, that he should be happy and that's what dictates right and wrong and I'm paraphrasing here but the question that Bonson always came back to is um, as he talked about good or bad happy or sad was why do you care why should we care about any of those issues if there is no objective right or wrong outside of ourselves. Um, one right. of the quick stories, and, and I think I shared with you on the phone the other day, Kirk, is, is um, you know, when you talk about natural happenings, uh, the God, God and a man, God and a scientist were having a, uh, a, a debate on whether, you know, how, how good is man? Can man do all of the things that he says he does? And man finally challenges God, the scientist challenges God to a, a duel. We're going to make a human being, and you know the technology is good enough. We can make that happen. The day finally comes, and God and, and the scientist are squared off, and um, God is getting ready to you know put put the uh, earth together, and he's getting ready to give one more breath into the man. And the scientist is over gathering up his matter, and God turns and he says, "No, no, no! You go get your own dirt." Right. <laughs> is it? I I made the dirt. This is my dirt. If you're so good, then you right. make your own dirt, and and it gets into some presuppositional. Make your human being out of your own stuff. Correct. Correct. So um, that's a great story. I yeah, like that. It kind of captures a number of things. So that's that's uh, the 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 quickest that I can do uh, a primer on on presuppositional apologetics. Um, let me interject real quickly here. If you're listening to us, this is Evidence for Faith, and I'm Kirk Hastings, and I'm speaking to our special guest this week, Joe McGettigan, who is talking to us about Assumption Jiu-Jitsu. You know, um, the, the one thing that we had uh, talked about was um, in, in the seminar, we go through a series of factoids, and, and I, I guess what I could do is, you know, run through these, and, and then I guess we can get into the actual model at, at your discretion. But that would there, be good. There, there are a handful of, of steps that we walk folks through in order to uh, get to these conclusions, and, and forgive me, I'm going to have to just kind of run through them without the qualifications, um, so, so it, it, it may come off as arbitrary. But there are a number of, of things around these. One right. is that everybody has a worldview. And there are, and, and when I use the word worldview, I'm saying that there are all kinds of assumptions that people work with in order to uh, make sense of their world. And um, to just live on a daily basis. Correct. You have to. Yeah, you absolutely have to. What, what you believe you know, is going to have a definite and very real impact on everything that you do every day. And the examples that I give uh, when I'm on a college campus, for example, is how many of you drove here? Number, yeah, everybody's hands goes up or, or not. Um, did you assume 
that your brakes were going to work? Or did you have to check the laws of fluid dynamics and you know, the laws of friction and all of that every time? No, Check you your as- brake fluid. Yeah. You, you assume that those things are going to work. And, right. and we work on, an, on, on a whole lot of things. And that brings us to uh, actually uh, factoid number three is uh, everybody works on a number of assumptions when interpreting and functioning in the world. You have to. Um, but jumping back to factoid number two is that there is absolute truth, and that truth by definition is, ex- is exclusive. If I say that the desk that we're sitting in front of is brown, the actual state or condition of things I'm saying is that the disc is brown, at which point it excludes that it can be black, red, or yellow. Right. So um, now, now what, again, and this goes back to what we were saying, what we are not talking about is any specific item as propositional truth. I, I obviously believe in the God of the Bible. Somebody else may not. That isn't the issue. What the issue is is that there has to be an actual state or condition of things. There either is a supreme being or there isn't, and then we titrate out which it is. Right. So that's when everybody works on a number of assumptions. When you follow the assumptions all the way back, and we talked about this briefly, is that when you follow the assumptions all the way back, the absolute most basic ones form one's ultimate commitment, i.e. believing and unbelieving. And um, uh, let me come back to, to one thing here. But uh, factoid number five is that, there is, is that the myth, myth of neutrality leaves really only with two possibilities for an ultimate commitment. It's the God of the Bible or it's something else. And there really is no middle ground. And, and this is a, a gigantic piece to this because very often you will get locked into a discussion. Somebody says, well, you know, why, why can't we just, you know, let's move into some middle ground. Let's get into some of the things that, that we can agree on. When you get all the way down to the ultimate commitments, there really is no middle ground. There either is the God of the Bible or there's something else. You can't right. have kind of the God of the Bible and something else. That's just not how he's declared himself to be. Right. And this is where we're very often accused of being elitist, narrow-minded, whatever. All we're saying is the desk is brown. The desk has been declared to be brown. It can't be red, yellow, blue, or green. That's implied in your statement. Correct. When you say it's brown, that it can't be any other color. Correct. And that's where the God of the Bible has declared himself to be a certain way, and and then we're titrating out, you know, is that the case or not? And then we went into factoid number six is, is really getting around the impossibility of the contrary, and I won't take the time to go through that again. The bottom line with factoid number seven is if the God of the Bible does not exist— our most basic assumptions about life can neither make sense nor be accounted for. And that's where the order, oughtness, personhood, and sin model comes in. Right. Fascinating stuff. So when you're looking at things like order, and, and this is something that, that you and I discussed yesterday, was when you start looking at naturalism, for example. Um, naturalism is uh, there are four basic elements within naturalism. The only things within the closed system of naturalism is time, energy, random chance, and matter. So there's and the, I think even the people that believe in that would agree to that. I that that would be my understanding, and 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 with full respect to to whoever I was discussing these issues with is that, and this is the beauty of presuppositional apologetics is that if that is not the definition that you understand to be the case, then please let me know what definition you want to use because. Right. Presuppositional apologetics can field any issue at any time on the planet, whether I'm an expert or not. It's the basic assumptions that we're looking at. So, um, yes, that would be my understanding of the naturalistic worldview. Time, energy, matter, and random chance. I think most of the famous atheists today, like Richard Dawkins and people like that, would agree with what you just said is is an accurate definition of what they believe. Okay. And, and, and I would agree with you that they would agree with us. If right. not, then let me know. All right. <laughs> um, and the, the issue then comes down to, um, you know, we, and this is where I think on, on college campuses and in a lot of the discussions that I've personally been in, where a lot of the things, frankly, just kind of get in the way of the discussion. So we talk about, you know, phylogenetic trees and fossil records and all of these different issues around, you know, micro versus macro evolution and, and all of those. And I've come to a place where I don't get into those discussions. And, and the reason that I do is not because I don't, you know, I, I don't understand them and I, I don't enjoy debating them or anything else, is that they really are secondary issues. And what I mean by that is when you go through the presuppositional apologetics, you come down to where you have this whole, what I'll call a house of cards called, called evolution. 
with evolution, you boil it all the way back down. And, and again, I, I, I would look towards the person to define what their understanding would be. But you get all the way back down to the proverbial primordial ooze in the swamp that you know had energy injected. You end up with a string of DNA, and we go from there. Or the original first cell or whatever. Yeah, however you want to go there. And, and I actually <clears throat> take the original cell back one more step with the DNA, basically because if there is no DNA, there is no cell. Right. What you have with the DNA is a string of nucleotides that um, then dictate what's going to happen with that cell and every cell after that. Let's go down the road, and, and I, I, I think this takes more faith than faith in a supreme being, but, but for the sake of argument, we'll, we'll go down this road. Is that You have a, an injection of energy that's strung together a string of nucleotides in order to form the first strand of DNA. Now, the probability of that is infinitesimally small, and again, I, I find it takes more faith to believe that you could get that kind of a string, just like you could get the string of ones and zeros to add up to, you know, Windows 2012. <laughs> but let, let's say that that's possible. I'll, I'll go down that road with you to, to the infinitesimal probability. At issue is that string of DNA holds information that must be translated and transmitted first time well or the second organism doesn't doesn't function right so the it begs the question where did the information come from you say well you know it it just is it's part of the string at which point i need to press that a little bit because what we're saying is that it happened through random chance and you can pick whatever you know definition of random that that you want um the definition that i i use is uh, without definite aim purpose, method, or adherence to a prior arrangement in a haphazard way, having no specific pattern. There's a bunch of different definitions that are rolled into that. Whatever one you want to use is okay. Or to us lay people by accident. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> it and, happened by accident. Right. And, and, and at issue here is, is that, yes, you may have a string. Again, I think, I think a lot of faith to say that the string could line up in that way. But how does random translate, transmit, and affect information. Because as soon as that happens, it ends up with some kind of an aim, has some kind of a purpose, has some kind of a method. It's no longer random. How does it accurately reproduce itself? Is that what you're saying? You, you, that, that's the ultimate question, yes, is that, is that the, the purpose of DNA is to duplicate itself within the next cell. There is right. a purpose, there's an intention, there's an intended outcome, if you will, for that string. Where right. did that intention come from, if you want to do it that way? Right. Um, there, there was an intention to the order of the nucleotides. Random cannot, by definition, have an intention. As soon as it has an intention, it's no longer random. So what we have is, within the naturalistic model, the absurdity is, is that random, within a certain definition that they have established, I did, I'm not making this up, the definition of random is without intention, without aim. All I'm doing is that I'm stepping into the unbeliever's worldview to say, okay, let's take it as it is. Right. You want, you, you, all you need to have is random, correct? Yeah, all we have is random. And random, you define random. Okay, can random have an intention? No, it can't, because then by definition it's not random. Okay, well, DNA has an intention. Where did that intention come from? So when you're talking about specifically if we say evolution, if the point of evolution is survival, you're saying where did that intent for survival come from then? If it's all a random yes. system. Yes. Oh, ultimately, yes. Um, and and I I I, I mean, why survive? According to what you said a few minutes ago, you know, you could say, well, why survive or why not? Right. Well, and then there you're starting to get into some of the issues around um, in the oughtness section, but but the short answer there is is yes, there as well. Um, ultimately, and, and this is where you, you, when you start getting into natural selection and the processes and all of that, all of those are happening after. After this initial fact, right, is and 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 I don't want to speak for the man because I've never met him personally or whatever. But but uh, Carl Sagan, this is when he went into the whole thing of you know extraterrestrials and and that whole construct, basically acknowledging the idea that the intention and the intelligence or the information, whatever word you want to use, that intelligence, that intention needed to be injected into the naturalistic model or it can't make sense, so therefore you had an extraterrestrial, which then begs the question, where did the extraterrestrial come from? Right. Now, that's within the unbelieving model, or a worldview. 
our worldview says that there is a supreme creator who, who in all of his wisdom and glory, manifested the physical universe out of nothing because that's what he spoke. You say, well, that's faith. Both of them are faith statements. The question is, the, the unbelieving worldview is impossible because of the impossibility of the contrary. Um, there's a whole lot here. I mean, this is this is uh, deep, deep stuff that um, uh, isn't always real easy because of some of these these uh, different issues. But um, for example, uh, let, let me do it this way. One of the things that that I will often do on a college campus to to show the depth of the assumptions that we have to go to. You have a. I'm, I'm sitting here in front of a computer, and and we could pull up a web page. A web page assumes that there are computers. Or assume, well, I'm sorry, let me back up. It assumes that there's a network of computers called the Internet. Right. The Internet assumes that there are individual units called servers and PCs or Macs, whichever part of that holy war you want to fall on. Right. Um, and the Macs and the PCs and the servers assume that there are substrates and electricity on which ones and zeros can be manipulated in order to translate and transmit information. That assumes that there are ones and zeros. <laughs> and then the question that you ask that, that you have to ask that will get to the depth that we're talking about is why are there ones and zeros? You say, what do you mean? Well what I mean by that is that there's a, a logic and a an order behind mathematics, ones and zeros. The question is, how do you account for that in a random universe? Right. A universal, non-material, absolute. Now, the uni- let me see if I understand this correctly. If the universe was truly random, even though right now ones and zeros might be the basis, ten minutes from now it could be fives and sevens. Or, you know, of course, in a mathematics sense, that doesn't make sense. But what I'm trying to say is, you know, it's ones and zeros now in a truly random universe. A little while later, it would be something else and then something else and then something else. Correct. Because that's what randomness is. Absolutely. And, 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 and before anybody goes, well, that, that, that's a ridiculous assertion, it, isn't that the point? Is that when Kirk says, you know, zeros and ones could turn into five plus seven, you know, one plus one could be five plus seven tomorrow. You say, well, that does, that's ridiculous. <laughs> yes, that's the point. The question is, why is that the point? There's information and, and intention inherent to the universe that time, energy, random chance, and matter cannot account for. Right. Whereas we're saying that there is a supreme being. Now, this is where the middle ground comes in, is that the unbeliever cannot allow for that supreme being because it automatically then violates our autonomy back to Romans 1. Now, I don't want to get you off your track or anything, but I just thought of an interesting question. I'm trying to put myself Mm -hmm. in the atheist position, Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking, what would I ask you if I was an atheist at this point? And the question that popped into my mind is, okay, how would you account for God then? God, God is, within our worldview, God is preexistent and, and eternal through eternity past. At which point you go, well, then, then the earth was, uh, you know, the earth was, it has always been. It's been, you know, uh, eternally the preexistent. the atheist would say, well, the earth was that, too. The earth has always been here and is eternal and everything. At which point I would point back to the impossibility of the contrary, is that everything in the physical universe, A, had a first cause, and, and we could go down a road with that, but for the sake right. of time we won't. Within its own worldview, physical matter has to have a first cause. Within our worldview, the supernatural created the natural. We're still back at the original question is, how do you account for the most basic aspects of life, i.e., or the order that is here, right. cannot be accounted for within the constructs that you have put forth. Mine does within my own worldview. I the see. key difference is, is that the naturalistic worldview cannot allow anything supernatural, i.e., not time, energy, random chance, and matter. That's fine. I just need to hold you intellectually honest to your worldview. Right. My worldview says that I'm not limited by time energy, random chance, and matter. Is that, that God ta- doesn't have to have a beginning because he said he doesn't have one. Correct. And that goes back to, you say, well, that, that, that's a cop-out. And, and I've heard this, and I, I, sure. I acknowledged on the surface, you say, well, that, that's a cop-out. Acknowledged? Yes, except if it is the actual state or condition of things. 
And that really is a critical piece. You say, well, now you're playing word games. I'm not. <laughs> is that is that is if if the actual state or condition of things is that there is a supreme supernatural creator, i.e. the God of the Bible, then I'm not just being biased, I'm falling in line with reality. Your worldview is making sense within your worldview. Correct. But and the naturalistic worldview doesn't make sense within their worldview. Correct. And and, and let's do another example. And that you're asking an excellent question. And, and hopefully um, if, if somebody didn't and I'm follow sure that you, or I've heard these questions before, too. That's why I'm asking. Them. Yeah. The, the issue is is what we're talking about is, is the difference within the worldviews. And the, the ultimate answer is the impossibility of the contrary. And it's only a cop-out if it's not the actual state or condition of things, at which point I point back to to the worldview to say, you know, this is consistent, the unbelieving is not. Um, if if you're someone is that's listening to this is struggling with it, you know, if uh, somehow get a hold of the transcript and go back over, we don't have the time to go back through, but the, the logic is sound. And, and maybe we could go through a, another arena is the, the whole thing about oughtness, you know, is there right or wrong? And it's probably overused in, in a number of circles, but I think it really pulls a number of things out, is that if you were to examine your own worldview, and say, you know, how do I account for the concepts of right and wrong? And then what what I do on in my discussions is to press any assertion in a practical example. I.e., the question is, was Hitler wrong? Could could and 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 I need to be very very clear here. I am not asserting at all in any shape or form <laughs> that Hitler was right at all. Hitler was pure evil. End of story. But if we're going to be objective in answering, asking the questions, could he have been right? Was he right? Was he wrong? And on what basis are we going to make those assumptions? And, and he, be- he believed he was right. He believed he was, he was absolutely right. And, sure. and the, the answers that we'll get back for how do you account for good and evil, you'll get things like, um, is it what's best for society? It's based on what most people agree on at any given time, i.e. some, some form of majority rules. Right. Um, some people will talk about natural laws, i.e. Uh, what, what is, uh, will best further the human race and allow it to develop to its fullest potential? Can you say master race? Um, what happens when we disagree on good behavior or bad behavior? Um, is behavior bi- biologically determined, or or is there you know something else responsible for our actions? Can moral law change? All of these different things, and when you go through each of these, these are essentially arguments and and issues that Hitler, within his own worldview, answered. So if you go down each of these lines, you could come up, and I am not, but you could come up with the idea that Hitler was could have been right. So you're saying, according to the naturalistic viewpoint, he was right. Could have been. Could have been. Could right. have been. And and you know, give a, give a couple of uh, uh, examples. And um, uh, there is a uh, and his name is escaping me right now. Um, I want to say his last name is uh, Davis out of uh, Princeton. Um, highly controversial world, uh, views where he speaks of uh, where we we don't need to preserve the aged or the uh, the sick or the mentally I know, retarded. I, know the or, you're, yeah. I can't think of his name either, but I, I want to say it's Davis. About. Out of Princeton, and 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 he's he, he believes that it's uh, not only is abortion okay, but if you have like a handicapped child, you can kill it up to a year old, and that's right. okay too. Right. And his views are, are are very controversial. At which point you go, why? If you follow through the evolutionary model, it's he's he's really being consistent with it. Now now, I, and I need <laughs> to be clear is that I, I'm saying that 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 is not good. And it's it's not even close to what we would consider to be good, but but those are the views, and he's being consistent. The question you have to ask is, why is everybody so abhorrent about his ideas if that's the way that the universe got from the primordial ooze to here? Right. The sick the sick didn't get us from quote unquote worse to better if you have that at all in your universe, but that's right. a different issue. The the there is no basis for the right and wrong inherent to medicine, for example, or law, or any of those different things. So really, in a naturalistic viewpoint, this professor that we're talking about at Princeton is being fairly accurate to his worldview when he says things like, you know, up to a year old, you can kill your baby if it's not perfect. That, that would be my assertion, I mean, that's yes. the laws of evolution working there. Yes. We don't want the baby to reproduce itself and give us a bunch of weak humans. Yes. And, and, and the reason that it's so abhorrent to people is this thing about borrowed capital. We know inherently that, that life should be preserved 
in all of its forms. Uh, a retarded child, a, a person that is sick, uh, you know, any of those different issues, the, the dignity of human life is to be preserved. So the, the, when people are abhorrent uh, around those issues, basically they're, they're working with the borrowed capital of the Christian worldview. Right, exactly. <laughs> Makes sense to me. <laughs> So, um, and we can go down, and, and, and this is where we you have know, about you know, three minutes or so. Can you wrap up here? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, when all is said and done, but you know, back to some of the my original statements is the the basis of this is there is an actual state or condition of things. Uh, that is the Webster's definition, at least one of the dictionary definitions of truth. There must be an actual state or condition of things. Each of us works on a number of assumptions. You have to. When you boil all of those assumptions down, you come down to a the world is, is God's as he has created it, or it's something else. But all of those something else's are reduced to absurdity. So if we're going to hold a worldview, no matter what it is, let's at least try to be consistent within our worldview and not start borrowing things from other worldviews to make our worldview work. Yes, yes. And and when when getting into a discussion or, or when I'm – and I, I don't do this as well as I, I probably should in, in a number of settings, but to gently uh, – seek to have folks be intellectually honest with their own worldview and, and not go with the borrowed capital. And I think it's important too, Kirk, with, with um, apologetics in general. One of the things that uh, when, when somebody truly understands ap- uh, presuppositional apologetics, it's an extremely powerful tool. And that issue here is not just to swagger around with some, you know, uh, uh, big weapon that you can just cut people to shreds. I, I think that, that that's extremely effective. If I could just go down that that road, is that the whole idea here, back to my first statement, is what we're seeking to do is to remove psychological barriers so that folks can enter into faith coming into the redemption that we know before the Creator, um, you know, rather than getting bogged down in in some of these other side issues. And um, uh, the real key here is that, you know, that we can come back to be redeemed, to be saved, to be uh, come back into fellowship with our Creator as as He has created that world to be. Right. Wow. Uh Really fascinating stuff. And am I correct, and I hope I'm correct in this, are you considering uh, doing a book about this? Or you sent me a manuscript that looked kind of like a book in progress. Any plans there? Uh, the short answer is yes. Okay. Um, some of my colleagues, uh, uh, Tom Masnick and uh, Mark Somalia, uh, two good friends that have uh, stuck with me with all of this, they, they're they uh, working on that. And um, so the short answer is yes. Uh, somewhere down the road we'll be looking to put this into written form. This this is fascinating stuff, and if you put it into a book, I'd be first in line to buy it. Well, I appreciate uh, that. Really interesting. Um, okay, so once again, this has been Evidence for Faith, and we have had Joe McGettigan with us today, an apologist, um, giving us a really interesting uh, overview of his idea called Assumption Jiu-Jitsu. I love that name. <laughs> so, okay, uh, Join us again next week, then, for more reasons to believe. And always remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah,